We come to your word recognizing that it's alive. Also recognizing that we, in our own lives, struggle with all the things of sin and disease and death. Discouragement, doubt, depression, debt, anxiety, denial, destructive habits or tendencies, destructive words or experiences, times of pain, times of hurt that we've received, that we've caused. And we know, Lord, that in so many ways we fall so far short of you, but you have reached down with your word. You have poured down from heavens grace into our hands, strength into our lives, salvation into our souls. May we open to you and receive from you today, from your word in wisdom. I pray that you would grant me, Lord, the grace to speak with wisdom and eloquence, with simplicity and sincerity, according to your spirit, that which you, Holy Spirit, desire to speak to the church today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My great aunt, that is my mother's aunt, or one of them, was named Grace, my grandfather's sister. She and my grandmother, my mother's mother, and her sister, my mother's mother's sister. I don't know, are you keeping track with this? Anyway, three aunts. Tatlotitas, uh, okay. They would get together and play cards uh, when they were all alive. They've all gone to be with the Lord now. But when I was a kid and I would come and visit my grandmother, I would enjoy being around when those great aunts would get together and they would play cards. They played cards that I didn't understand then and I don't understand now. I don't know how to play bridge. I remember when they put it in the newspaper. I don't even know if they still do that anymore. But I used to see it in the newspaper and think, I, you know, this might as well be calculus for me. I have no idea what's going on. In bridge, they played pinochle, which to me just sounded like some kind of nut mix. And they were a mix of nuts, I'll tell you. They had so much laughter and joy and fun. But one of the things that they would often say, if the two of them were gathered together, and so my, my grandmother and her sister would often be convened together before Grace would arrive, and they'd see her coming, sometimes from the window, sometimes from the door of, the, of my great aunt's apartment, and they would, they would turn to each other and they'd say with a laugh, here comes amazing Grace. That was how they liked to refer to her. And, of course, she got a kick out of that. They called her Amazing Grace. It was kind of a compliment and kind of a, a recognition of how wild and outlandish she could be. But I always associated that with her. Here comes Amazing Grace. I never got to spend very much time with her. She didn't live in the same proximity, and she didn't live as long as either of them. She was, one of the first, she was the first of those three to pass. But I do remember going to her memorial, which was held in San Bernardino, where my grandmother lived as well. And I remember sitting in the, in the funeral home where the memorial was held and looking at that, that program, that bulletin you get, the, the biography of a life. So many years, so much that has happened, so many hopes and dreams and loves and losses, fights and failures, victories and miracles, reduced down to just so many pages. Gives you pause, doesn't it? And I remember looking at her photo there and looking up to the head of the room, looking up to the Lord and saying, in my mind, here comes amazing grace. Receive her, Jesus. 
here comes amazing grace to you. I trust she's with the Lord and that she has experienced her namesake in a way that goes beyond anything that you and I can fully appreciate here and now. But I would like to invite you to receive something from the Lord today. I want to say to you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, get ready. Here comes amazing grace to you, to you, to you, to you from him today. Amazing grace. It's powerful and glorious. It's righteous and true. It's gracious and kind. It's him, the Lord, the living one, the resurrected one, the righteous one, coming to embrace you. And all those things that I just described, the failures and faults, the sins, the hurts, the losses, the victories, the joys, the hopes, the dreams, all of that, the Lord Jesus Christ will embrace in himself, wash in the water of the word that he himself is the very living personification of, wash in the blood that he himself gave for you and I. Jesus Christ came so that grace might reign. <laughs> you know, reign in this context means rule and reign, like a king on the throne. But I like that this morning the spirit of the Lord has paired it with the idea that grace also rains down like water on our hand, like a touch at our side, the side stander, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside and says, I will strengthen you with my righteous right arm. I will even part the waters for you and wash you as you go through because by my grace you have been saved and by grace alone, by grace alone. The whole book of Romans, this whole long letter that Paul has written, and in previous messages in this series, I've talked about the historical context of it and some of the thematic content of it. I've spent a great deal of time in recent weeks talking about that. I'm not going to talk much about that today. I want to really get into the immediate content of, cha uh, content of chapter 5 that we're going to look at together. But I encourage you that if you haven't been part of this series so far or if you're trying to keep pace with it and we're dealing with a lot of material as the weeks go by, go back and look at prior messages online at mypcf.org or on our YouTube channel. You can go to the sermons page on our website and you can listen to or view previous sermons. You can see the notes and you can track with this message. And I encourage you also to be reading the book of Romans on your own. We've still got weeks and weeks to go in this series. In fact, it's going to take us through the middle of this year. But... We actually only have a couple of more weeks, today and next week, by God's grace, when I will be preaching on Romans. And then we're going to take a pause. I'm very excited that uh, in a, a couple of weeks we have Pastor Art Cabrera coming to bring uh, the, the main morning message on uh, Sunday, March 21st. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, by the way, just a reminder, as you see in the bulletin and as you've heard mentioned, uh, don't forget to change your clocks this Saturday night because... The time change is already on us. By this time next Sunday, that is uh, uh, Sunday, March 14th, it'll be daylight saving time again. Anyway, in a couple of weeks, Pastor Earl will be bringing the message. And then we're going to do a series outside of Romans for the Easter season. So beginning on Palm Sunday and moving through Easter Sunday, I'm going to bring a series that is about the point of sacrifice. And then we'll come back to Romans later uh, as we get into April. So we're going to take a little bit of a pause 
And that's why I want to mention that there's real value for you in going and taking a look at the materials that are available there so that the purpose of the Lord in this year of purpose, in this series of preaching, is actually being fulfilled in your life, that you are partnering with God's purpose for this series of messages. Because, you know, this isn't just about um, some random series. Then when the Lord calls me to preach and you to learn and us to learn together in a series, he has a purpose for it. And that purpose will be most richly realized in any individual life and in the life of this community as we really tune in to God and listen to what he has to say to the church in this particular series. So I want to look today at the letter so far. What Paul has written to this early church in the major metropolis of ancient Rome We have gone through the first four chapters together. So as a reminder, Paul starts out by introducing himself because he's writing to a church, a city of churches, really. This is probably a group of home churches, most likely, uh, that will all receive this letter in a circular fashion. And he's writing to them without having yet visited the city at the time that he is writing, in the mid-50s, probably A.D. He will eventually visit Rome, and probably multiple times. But when he was writing this letter, he hadn't been there yet. So most of them were unknown to him. He knew a few of them from having met in other parts of the realm in other times of his ministry. But most of them didn't know him. And he wanted to introduce himself to them and his gospel, as he refers to it. Which is a wonderful way of thinking of the gospel. Gospel is from the Greek word that means good news. And it had a specific technical Um, understanding or definition in the ancient world. It was an edict from a ruler or from the government. And it was often related to the coming uh, visitation of a king or a good declaration from a ruler to his people. And so Paul has explained himself as a commissioner. That's what apostolos is, a commissioned one. One who has been commissioned by his contact with Christ. Paul met the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus and had an extraordinary encounter. And from that, he dedicated his life to the Lord who he realized had dedicated his life to Paul. And he became commissioned into this mission, this work of sharing the good news. But Paul refers to it as my good news. And I think what he means by that is In a formal sense, he's saying, I want you people in Rome who are fellow Christians like me. Some of you are Jewish Christians, like I, Paul, am. Some of you are Gentile Christians, and I, Paul, am not a Gentile, but I am known for ministering to the Gentiles. I want all of you to know that my my gospel is the gospel of Christ. In other words, he wants them to know that they can rely upon his teaching. He knows that there are things that are said about him. You know, sometimes people are saying, oh, that Paul, he has rejected the law. He has rejected the scriptures. Paul wants them to know that's not the case. Other people would say, Paul preaches grace. He says, you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. God forgives it all. And Paul wants people to know, no, that's not grace as I understand it in my gospel. He wants people to understand how in God, mercy and justice have kissed as the scripture says. He wants them to understand that the law is a law of grace and that the grace of God fulfills the law. He also wants them to understand that this message, which is for all people, 
is also very personal. It's my good news. So then you also have good news. What is your gospel? Are you a slave of Christ? Have you been commissioned by Christ with a message that is utterly integrated into your life? So much so that when people ask you about the gospel, what you are obliged to share is your gospel. Not in some sense that it diverges from the reality of the scriptures, but rather that it is in fact fed by that reality. That you have this sort of main line attachment to the life of God, but it's flowing through you, through the individuality of who you are in him and what he has called you to be, the particular problems you have faced and the victories that he has brought, the times when he has communicated with you and revealed himself to you, or the times in silence when you didn't know exactly what he was saying and you didn't know for sure if he was there, but you held on by faith. And that's a part of your testimony of the good news too. The good news that God is there. That he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That he is kind and gracious and merciful. But that he is also righteous and honest and just. You know, if you have had an encounter with Jesus, you have a gospel that is uniquely imprinted in you. It's the same message. The essential message does not change. But what makes it unique is you. Is the fact that you believe it. That you can share it. That you know it. A lot of times people think that they have to learn all of these uh, very complicated uh, expressions of doctrine. And I don't want to dissuade anybody from learning doctrine. Doctrine is essential to knowing the gospel. But I want to remind you that if you have to know everything about the intricacies of God's will and way and work and word before you can begin to share, you'll never be able to share because you and I will never come to the end of what we have to learn from this word. So there are fundamentals that need to be known. There's no question about that. And getting that that wrong would be a problem. Hey, by the way, that's why I teach a class called Fundamentals of Faith. That's why we have Praise School of Ministry. That's why I preach on Sunday mornings as well. But there is work involved in knowing more and more about the living word of God and how the Lord operates. The history of what he's done, the prophecy of what he will do, all of that is very important. But never forget that right now today, you know enough about Jesus, if you know Jesus at all, to be able to share his gospel as your message of good news to the people around you. And if you're not doing that, that may be part of the reason why you're not realizing the fullness of his purpose for you in this particular moment. Maybe it's time to give yourself over to more of what God wants to do through you. Maybe it's time to give yourself over to sharing more about your faith and not less. To speaking more about Jesus. And not only in what you say, but in who you are. In how you live. In what we do day by day. If I'm a slave of Christ, and we're going to talk more about that next week, what that means, but I don't shy away from that terminology, even though, as we've already described in the message today, when I was speaking about amazing grace and the story of that slave trader who was liberated from uh, that terrible legacy and brought into a better way of living, we recognize that slavery and everything associated with it is so distasteful to to our concept of liberty and freedom, as well it should be. And yet, there is something about 
this kind of enslavement that Paul is talking about that is beautiful. It is a willing submission. Paul is saying, I desire to completely belong to God. I don't perceive myself as belonging to myself. I perceive myself, I I confess myself as belonging to him. But the reason that that can be done with such joy and such an affirmation of utter freedom is that the Lord is not a taskmaster. The Lord is a lover of our soul. And so by being enslaved to Christ, I find real freedom. Because remember this from last week? The one who the Son sets free is free indeed. Free for a purpose, to share the good news of God. But the good news begins with bad news. Paul talks in Romans chapter 1 how all of creation actually reveals the good news of God, which is that God exists. And that what God has made, he has made by his word, and he's made it to be good. Now, the general revelation as we talk about it, everything of creation that we can see in the outer world, or even the extraordinary design of our own bodies, fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalmist says, are a testimony to what God has done and how amazing it is. I mean, is there anything more extraordinary than the beating of the human heart? how that operates, the circulatory system, the breathing in and out of the lungs. I'll tell you, there's something even more extraordinary to me. I was watching a video uh, on, on um, human anatomy this week on YouTube. I won't go into how I got into watching that. It was a, for a separate purpose. But in any case, they were talking about the brain. And it might make people feel a little bit squeamish or whatever, but this, this physician was talking about you know, doing a... Uh, a, uh, an autopsy on a body when they remove the brain. I know, it's kind of a grisly thought, right? But it's also fascinating and extraordinary when you consider that she was talking about how uh, it's almost gelatinous, the brain. I know, going into crazy territory here. But how does this operate? This, this, this really relatively small organ and out of it all the extraordinary artistry of humanity Every political empire built, every market of commerce extended around the globe, every ship that's been shot to the moon and to Mars has come to pass because of that gray matter that we can't even figure out. How does it do what it does? There's some kind of spark there in the image of God. It's a testimony. And so Paul says, There's really no excuse for not believing that God is there because everywhere all around us, it's all evidence. And yet, Paul also recognizes that there are all throughout human history, all around the world, people who have rejected that truth and said, we don't believe that there's that God or any God. We don't need that law or that rule. We're going to do our own thing and live according to our own law. And yet, what happens to those people is they die because it is a sin to deny and disobey God, and it leaves you, leads you away from God's word, away from God's way, away from God's will, which is life. So it leads you to death. So the solution then would be, apparently, uh, to take that special revelation that God has granted to us. Not just the, the general testimony of everything that he's created, but the specific testimony of his word. The covenants that he made with people 
From the very beginning, covenants made with Adam and Eve, covenant with Noah to save humanity despite humanity's sinful ways, covenant with Abraham, a man that that the Lord handpicks and says, I will make of you a father of a nation and many nations because I want a people that I select for myself by my grace, where it's very clear that it's not anything you did and it's not anything so spectacular about this particular nation of people. It's my choice that I have made a covenant and I'll give you a sign of that covenant. And out of that sign and out of that covenant and out of that people, I will produce an heir for you and for me, a son. Not only is it the son Isaac that Abraham has in his old age and his wife in her old age that they have together, but also ultimately Jesus. And so there's Abraham, there's Moses, there's a series of covenants and commands and laws, and these people that God has made for himself, uh, the, the nation of Israel, become very attentive to those ways. But the problem is that Paul reveals in chapter 2 and 3 of Romans is they have sinned also. All have sinned. So there's those who have gone their own way and denied the reality of God, but they have still gone the way of death. But then there are those who have said, okay, we believe in God, And we want to serve God, but they've become entangled in this legalistic notion of how they can earn their way into a right relationship with him and how they can fulfill every aspect of the law. But the problem is they're not able to fulfill every aspect of the law. They're constantly failing the law, so they also have sinned. Whether it's worldly rejectors of God or religious self-righteous legalists, All have fallen short of the glory of God. So the bad news is everyone is doomed to death. But the good news is that God has promised life all the same. Life by his grace. And what he is asking for from us is all that he's ever been asking for. Trust. God has always said, I will take care of you. I will provide for you. I will show you the right way and the wrong way. I'll give you the freedom to choose, but I'll also give you the answers. You know, it's like a teacher saying, I will teach you and I will test you, but I'll also give you the answers. But when I test you, you have to trust me. Oh, let me say that again. When I test you, saith the Lord, you have to trust me. That's the hardest test. That's the only test. That's Every test, over and over again, do you trust me? Will you believe me? How about when what God is saying is impossible? Noah, I'm going to cleanse this whole earth in water, but I'm going to save you and your family because I want to preserve my family, the people of God. And through you, I'll I'll preserve life on earth. So build this boat. (laughs) Do you believe me? Will you trust me? It's going to take all your resources. It's going to make you a point of ridicule in the world. Will you trust me? Abraham, I want you to leave your homeland. I want you to go to a country you don't know and set yourself up there. Yeah, sure, you're established here. Yeah, you've got wealth from your father's family. Yes, if you stay where you are, you've got a good road ahead of you and it leads to good things, but I want you to leave all of that behind and trust me. I'll give you a son. Yes, I know that your wife and you have been a barren couple. You've never been able to have children. Yes, I know the years are going by, but still I say, I will do it. Do you trust me? Now I've done it. 
I've given you the son. He's grown into a young boy. You're so proud of him. I want you to take him up to the top of the hill and put him on the altar under the knife to sacrifice him to me. Do you trust me? You say, why would God do that? We'll talk about that in the point of sacrifice. But here's what God did at the point of sacrifice. He gave a ram in the bush so that he would be called Yehovah Yireh, the God who provides. For it will be said on the the mountain of the Lord, the Lord will provide. But do you trust me? Moses, will you lead my people? Do you trust me? Jesus, I call you to go to the cross. Do you trust me? Yes, even Jesus was called to trust the Father and to rely upon the Spirit. And all that can ever be done in that equation is either by faith or not at all. In other words, to trust is to have faith. And it is faith that fulfills the law. The law, in fact, is a law of faith. Now, we've talked about how law is used in this letter and in the Bible in a variety of different ways. And so in the context of a particular passage, law can mean a lot of different things. When I say that faith fulfills the law, I'm referring to the law in that broad sense of God's ways and God's will. Faith fulfills God's will. Faith is the way that God operates. God operates by faith. Faith, hope, and love will never pass away. We have been told that by the inspired and inerrant word of God. Paul himself writes that faith, hope, and love abide. And Paul here tells us that grace abounds which may as well put it in our mind that these also are all attributes of God. God is love. Faith is the substance of what we hope for. What do we hope for? We hope for God and for his love. And so God is hope. And if faith is the substance of hope, then God is faith. And if God is the one who gives grace and God is gracious, then God is grace. So you see, in all these things, what we are really always talking about is God, God, God. It's all about him. It's all about him. And our trust in him has to operate by faith. It's not always what we see. In fact, usually it goes against what we see. But if we will trust the Lord, we will see the work of the Lord fulfilled in our lives. And Abraham is an example of that. In chapter 4, we looked last week at how What Abraham did when he received the covenant and the sign of the covenant was circumcision and the product of the covenant, if you will, was a son whom he also circumcised and who became the lineage of Israel and ultimately ushered in the Messiah, a son born to us because to us a son was born, to us a child was given and the government was established on his shoulders and he's the prince of peace. He's the result of that of that covenant, he's the the fulfillment of that purpose and that word. All of that Abraham believed by faith. Because before Abraham was even born, Jesus, the great I am, was already there. And so it was in Jesus that Abraham had faith. He may not have known the name, but he knew the Lord. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Abraham trusted in that before he enacted the sign of circumcision, which Paul says in chapter 4 of Romans is the indicator that the faith precedes the sign. 
And therefore, it is out of faith, listen now, out of faith that obedience flows. So you might wonder, even as Paul did, as we will see in later weeks, when Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. Who will save me from this? The God of grace will save you. How? By faith. Believe that God can change and transform who you are from the inside out. Believe it. You say, oh, I've tried so many times. Well, maybe it's time to stop trying and start believing. You remember that scene? Did you ever see the movie The Matrix? I know it's an R-rated movie with so many reasons why it is. And if that's not your cup of tea, I completely understand. But there's a wonderful moment, and even Pastor Maureen Broderson, whom I love so much, preached it and used the clip one morning. I think it was last, well, it was a year before when she was here sharing with us. That scene from The Matrix when Neo, the hero of the movie, who's been told all along that there's this destiny of his life, but it involves him operating in a world in which he can't see the reality that's behind what he can see. He has to believe it by faith. And it calls him to do these extraordinary things to the point where he dies and then suddenly kind of resurrects in this moment. They say, what's happening? He's taking this stand. And somebody says, he's starting to believe. Let that be you. Let you be Neo. It means new. For you are a new creation in Christ. And the grace of God is operating in you. Believe it by faith. If you don't believe it by faith, then all that believing in the gray matter doesn't do a bit of good unless it's faith that is the divine spark operating there. Because you can know the word inside out and still not have faith. Or you can say, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and it didn't work. So I give up and go the other way. But you still won't have life. But what Paul is saying is there is a way of faith in which God's grace does it all. And Abraham believed that and God did it. He brought life to you through that old body Abraham. He made Abraham a father to you. It doesn't matter whether you're part of the circumcision or not, whether you're Gentile or Jewish. What matters is, are you a child of faith? If you are, then you're a child of Abraham. Then you're a child of God. So, God's law has been revealed. And Romans 1 through 4 has been showing us how even the sheer act of creation and everything that exists around us reveals God's work, his specific covenants with people. These reveal God's will. In the commands, we get God's ways. How are we to live? How now should we live? And ultimately, Christ is the answer. Christ is that one who shows us. He's the creator. He was in the beginning with God, and he is God. In him, all things were made. Nothing was made without him. In him was life and light. He shows us the life of God. He gives us the life of God. And in Christ, the law is fulfilled. Christ came so that grace might reign, might have power in our lives, peace with God, because that's the problem. We live in a world of pieces. We are people broken to pieces. And we have been broken in our relationship with God, which has broken every other relationship in our lives, including even with ourselves. You know, you have a relationship with yourself, the way you talk to yourself. 
the way you look at yourself. Who do you see when you look in the mirror? And how do you talk to that person? Are you kind with that person? Are you honest with that person? Are you understanding with that person? What do you expect of that person? You have a relationship with yourself. And it's not a relationship of peace until the peace of God reigns in you. It will, by God's grace. Now, Paul makes it clear in chapter 5 that the rule of death is also the problem. But that death came because of the breaking of peace with God. Death entered into Adam when Adam exited God's will. But through Adam, death entered into all the world. And through that, sin entered all the world. So that now you and I have all ratified Adam's disobedience. We are like our mother and father, Adam and Eve. We also have taken the free will that God has given us and used it to disobey God. Yes, I have, you have, we all have. If we're going to be honest with that person in the mirror, let's be honest with the Lord above and the testimony of the Spirit within and say, yes, we also have sinned like from the very beginning, our human forebears, and we also know that death stands in front of us. But we also believe by faith that through the grace of God, even if we die, yet we will live because life is in Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. Each of these is a revelation of God's grace. The grace of God reigns. There is peace available with God. That's my gospel to you. That's the good news that Jesus Christ not only makes plain, but makes real in our lives. And it's a, it's a testimony of God's grace. So that even though we have disobeyed, we have not disenthroned God. I don't even know if that's a word, but we have not pushed God off the throne, and we never could. God cannot be removed from his throne. And God's victory cannot be abolished. It's never in question. So even though death came and achieved a victory over humanity, God came as a human and achieved victory over death. So now death, where is your sting? Where is your victory, death? The tomb is empty. The Lord is raised. Hallelujah. And because he was raised, you will be raised too. I'm disenchanted with the reality that so many modern Christians, especially in the Western world, seem to have no notion of the promise of bodily resurrection. We have reduced Christianity into a promise about heaven in some far quadrant of the galaxy. I don't know, we'll find Captain Kirk there or something, as though it were some other place in the cosmos where we just go in and camp, a kind of celestial vacation ground. Heaven is here right now. Your eternal life has already been sown into you if you believe in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't received Jesus Christ yet, friend, that's the message. What are you waiting for? Heaven is here right now. I guess it's kind of like the the matrix again. There's a red pill and a blue pill. I won't say that realizing that the kingdom of heaven abides within does not begin to produce a lot of problems in life because it will put you into conflict with a world in delusion around you. But it is the truth and it's the only way to life. Do you want to just go down into the death of sleep, never realizing the reality of God's truth for you? No, God's grace is greater. So receive the new life in Christ that begins and that advances right here and now. But 
Recognize this. We live in these broken bodies of flesh. We have a struggle in this life. And that struggle goes on. And ultimately, these bodies die. But they will be resurrected. That matters. That's the gospel. The Lord wants to renew everything. In fact, it starts with the renewal of the body of his people. There's a reason why you and I are called the body of Christ. Do you know that Jesus is physically present on the earth right now? What does it take to be physically present? You need a body and a spirit and a mind, right? And if you've got those three things, someone is alive. You can have one of those three things and, and not have the others, and that person isn't alive. You can have a body, but if it lacks a spirit and a mind, it's a dead body. We call that a corpse. The body of Christ is not a corpse. It was once. It is no longer. The body of Christ has been resurrected. The spirit of Christ, which once was singularly upon the anointed one, has been given to his anointed ones. That's what Christians means. Anointed ones. And that's why we are called the body of Christ. And we have the spirit. And the spirit gives us the mind of Christ, who is the head. So you and I are Jesus on earth. And Jesus has not stopped healing. Jesus has not stopped preaching. Jesus has not stopped liberating and confronting injustice and speaking the truth. And Jesus has not changed his plan that he will rule and reign with grace. And where sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. We are the body of Christ. So be it. That doesn't mean that you, Lone Ranger, get to go out and be the one and only Christ. It means all the more that you and I need to be bound together by his blood, drawn together in the communion of his body, washed together in the witness of his word, filled together in the fullness of his spirit, and at work together in the unity of the faith. That's our purpose. That's what we are to live for. That's our witness. That's our mission. It's a mission that is full of joy because it is full of the grace of God that brings peace. You can be at odds with everything of the world. You can be in any point of challenge and trial. Look at Paul. You can be in chains, in prison, sentenced to death, people lying about you, people hating you, not a penny to your name. And what is he doing? He's singing hymns to the resurrected Lord. He's writing letters to the church, letters that will sustain and survive for 2,000 years. Listen, you can dismiss all you want about the Bible, about God and Christianity, but you cannot deny this. There was a Jewish man named Saul called Paul who wrote letters to the churches 2,000 years ago, and they are still around. That in itself is a miracle. Why? Why would that man's work sustain for so long? Why would it reach so many people in such a powerful way if it were not for the fact that the grace of God lives within it and reigns and speaks through it. So you can have any problem, but if you have peace with God, no problem is a problem. Amen. And if you don't have peace with God, you can have everything else and everything's a problem. You can have all the riches of the world, all the fame, all the favor, but if you don't have peace with God, you have no peace within. You know that bumper sticker. If you know Jesus intellectually, you know him, Relationally, you know peace. But if you have no Jesus, you have no peace. I agree. 
We've been given peace with God through God's work for us, which we trust by faith. And as we believe by faith, the work of God is realized within us. So then we have access by faith into grace. You know, when we talk about grace, we think of it many ways. <laughs> There's, I'm making reference to all kinds of secular media here, but I like the show Seinfeld. Again, I get it if you're not into that. I'm not declaring that there's anything there of a modeling of good life, but there are funny things said. There's a scene where Elaine, one of the characters, is uh, trying to get a job at a publishing company where Jackie Onassis was once employed, and in fact, the former first lady had been employed in the publishing industry as an editor in New York City in her lifetime, in her later years. And of course, Jackie O, as she was called, was known for her grace, her beauty, a way of holding herself with that kind of sense of nobility and yet also vulnerability, tenderness, beauty, honesty, integrity, all these things that are kind of wrapped up in the idea of grace. And, uh, and the, the editor, the, uh, the woman executive is saying to uh, Elaine, you know, you either have grace or you don't. You can't have just a little grace. You either have grace or you don't. To which Elaine finally has to say, look, I don't have grace. I don't need grace. I don't even say grace because she's so fed up with this idea. But the reason why you and I say grace, which is an old-fashioned way of saying a blessing, is that what we realize is grace comes from God. And in fact, what that woman says in the show about you can't have just a little grace, it's true. You either have grace or you don't. But where grace is given, it abounds. It's like a seed. When it's planted, it multiplies. And there's a kind of balance that's described in grace. There is understanding. There's an attitude of forgiveness. There is wisdom and discretion. All these things wrapped up in the notion, in the concept of grace. And Paul's saying, we enter into that experience of Godness, of God's character alive in us through faith. And it gives us hope that what we are experiencing is just a foretaste of everything that God will establish ultimately through his grace at work in our lives and in our world. And so, even when we suffer in this world, that suffering is nothing compared with the goodness of grace that we have already tasted and the glory of what God promises ahead. And so, in fact, we're willing to suffer because what we realize is the suffering brings a kind of discipline to us. It causes us to have to persist. I was talking with one of the elders of the church last night about challenging times. I've, I'm in challenging times. We as a community of faith are in challenging times. Many of you are in challenging times. I spoke with people this week who have challenges with their kids, with their grandkids, and they're so concerned about uh, those uh, things that are going on. Nothing probably affects us more than the relationships we care the most about. If you have a problem in a relationship with a spouse or a child or a parent or a sibling or, or grandchildren or a grandparent, it cuts very quickly to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? It causes us great distress. And so I've been talking with uh, folks going through some of those things. Another thing that can really derail us is if we have health issues. My back went out suddenly and totally this week. Many of you were praying for me. I thank you very much for your prayers. God really used your prayers. God used a wonderful believer, my doctor, my chiropractor. I want to give my uh, shout out to Dr. Louis Camarillo. He's on, on Vermont. Go see him. Tell him I sent you. He's absolutely fabulous. Wonderful, wonderful chiropractor, wonderful man of the Lord. 
Uh, and he's always been a great help to me and, and God's hands on me. I'll tell you, he was the body of Christ in that moment, putting the hands of Jesus on me. Your prayers were the voice of Jesus over me and I feel much better today uh, and it's a miraculous kind of healing. Hazel could tell you, I couldn't even stand up straight. I couldn't walk around. It, it's, you know, but those kinds of things can be so derailing to our faith. It sounds really simple, but in the moment you're thinking, I can't do anything. How am I going to do what I'm supposed to do and is this going to get worse? And it could be something much more severe. You know, the diagnosis can come that can absolutely drown out hope. But remember, God's grace is there with you. And so God's grace will give you perseverance. And that will develop your character. And then you'll have more hope. And that hope will not put you to shame. You won't be embarrassed for believing in Christ in the long run. You may be embarrassed now in this world, but don't be worried about that. In fact, if there's no confrontation of your faith, your faith is probably not really at work. If nobody is embarrassing, nobody, if nobody feels that you're, you're, you know, you never have any challenge because of your faith, maybe let your faith show a little more. Because challenge is actually to be expected. But don't worry. If your hope is in the Lord, and if your life is according to his word, and if you are living by the prompting of the spirit, and if you are a part of the body, then Christ Jesus is going to ultimately honor you for trusting in him. And you will experience immediately the resident love of God poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to us when we were still at odds with him. When we were powerless to save ourselves, he died for us. We weren't godly when he died for us. You say, well, I wasn't even born yet. No, but all of your sins and mine were out ahead, and yet he died for us, right? And Paul says, for somebody to do that for a righteous person is extraordinary. But Jesus did it for unrighteous people. And that's a sign of grace, the grace of God. He demonstrated love for us in this, this body broken here, this communion table, this blood poured out. And we've been justified by that blood. Now listen, if we've been justified by that blood, then we have peace with God. There is a wrath of God that is going to be poured out on all things. There is a judgment. That's part of the good news. Actually, we want that. All the clamoring for justice today is an expression of the internal realization that evil must be confronted, that wrongs must be righted, that, that things must be addressed. Crimes cannot just be absolved. They have to be acknowledged. And God will do that. And it ought to put the fear of God in us because we are the criminals. We are the sinners. But we are not at odds with God because God came to us when we were exactly like that. You say, I don't know if God would receive me. He already did. Amen. I can't really believe that. He died. What more do you want? How about this? He rose again. Is that not enough? He's coming again. So now that's it. Third time's a charm. He came. He died. He rose again. He's coming back. But at that point, then the choice is made. So now is the day to believe and be, to receive the peace of God by the grace of God. Because while we were still enemies, he reconciled us. So he will save us from judgment and he will cleanse us by his spirit. So we have reconciliation in Christ. We still have death. Sin entered the world through one man and death came in through that sin. And death then came to all people, even as life came to all people through that one man. 
You know, it's genetically visible that we have a common ancestor. Do you know that? There is a, there is a genetic blueprint that indicates we all come from a common pair of ancestors, a common set of ancestors. I know somewhere out there, somebody with great knowledge on this is saying, well, the genetics don't evidence that those two ancestors lived at the same time. I recognize it doesn't, but it does allow for it. It does allow for it. There is that allowance. In any case, it's quite evident that we all are the same. There's one race. It's the human race. You might find that to be an inflammatory statement. Um, Can I say something with great love and grace to you? If you do find that to be an inflammatory statement, that's your problem. And it is a problem because it is a truth. There is only one kind of humanity. There are many ways in which that one kind of humanity manifests. In fact, there are as many ways as there are people. But there are groups. There are nations. There are ethnicities. But there's only one race. The human race. And all within it have sinned and gone astray. But all have been brought the opportunity of salvation through Christ. And in fact, before the law, now here Paul is speaking specifically about the word, the covenant and commands. Before that law was given, even though no one knew that, right? Moses hadn't received the commandments, so no one could be breaking the commandments. So is it fair to say they were sinning? Well, they weren't sinning in that particular way, but they were still under the power of sin, so they were under the power of death. Death reigned, he says, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. So well, now what does he mean by this? Because isn't death still reigning? Actually, from the time that God gave the law, what he gave was evidence of victory over death. He already laid down the pattern for how death would be defeated. Now, death still goes on. I suppose you could say that death is in its death throes. But there's a reason why it goes on, which is that God is allowing for more people to enter into life. And the world goes on, by God's grace. You say, why? what is God waiting for? God knows. But it's more people being brought into life. So if many died by the sin of one man, Adam, think about how much more God's grace and the gift of life that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflows to the many. And the gift of God can't even be compared with the result of the sin because the gift is so much greater than the sin. Life is so much greater than death. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. In other words, it's just one little thing. You know, it's like the moonshot. When the engineers were trying to figure out in NASA how to get somebody to the moon, and you realize there's a billion things that could go wrong that would ruin the whole mission, but there's only one way for it to go right, which is they land, right? They land and they're alive and they're able to come back. But there's so many little things that if you miscalculate or you miss the mark, it's like surgery, you know, in the microsurgery where there's very fine little details and one wrong move of the scalpel or the laser and the patient dies. That's, that's Adam. One act of disobedience brought death to all. But Jesus came And think of how that death had multiplied. Think of how that sin had gone over and over and compounded and become darker and deeper. And one human life given over to God. Divine in origin, but human in nature. Divine in nature as well. We refer to that as the hypostatic union. Fully man, yet fully God, and fully faithful, lived and died. And in that sacrifice, 
every sin was covered. Every sin was covered. And the grace of God abounds with life. Out of that death, life has been reborn in the world. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? One trespass resulted in condemnation of all people. One righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So now here it is. This is the life. This is the blood. The scripture says the life is in the blood. This is the body of Christ, broken for you and for me for the forgiveness of sins. If you have your elements at home, I'm going to ask that you bring them forward as we come to the conclusion of this message. And for here in the room, these will be brought to you. Please hold it until all have been served. There's life for all people. The disobedience of of one man made all men and women sinners. But the obedience of one man, Jesus, makes righteousness available to all. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. What does that mean? Remember how I talked about Paul encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus? Paul was one of those religionists. He knew the law. He knew the word but he was at odds with the Spirit of God and he didn't even know it. He was at odds with the Son of God because he didn't believe that Jesus was Messiah. So he was given over to persecuting and prosecuting anyone who called themselves a Christian. He was arresting the, the Jewish believers in Christ and he was seeking to have them put to death on capital offense for their heresy. And on the road to Damascus, suddenly Jesus encounters him. Jesus is there in a flash of light a voice that speaks. And Paul, who had such a clear-eyed vision about what God had called him to do, but was wrong, was suddenly blinded by the light. It's where we get that phrase, blinded by the light. The light came so that Paul could see how blind he really was. Before the light came, Paul could see. But what he couldn't see is that he thought he was following God, but he was really following the wrong rule. So the light came to blind him and reveal his blindness. And for days he was blind until he went to the person, the man who lived on Straight Street that God had told him to go to. And he said, have that righteous man pray for you and you'll you'll receive my grace. And when that man laid hands on Paul and prayed for him, It was like scales fell from Paul's eyes and he could see. I want you to consider the law of God that way. The world thought that it could see. It said, I see, I see, I understand, I know the way. But the law came like lightning on the mountain to reveal to the people our blindness. But we were still in blindness. The law came to make that blindness known. The law reveals our sin, but it cannot heal our blindness. But God's grace will heal the blindness. The very light that blinded us is the light by which we will see. But for the rest of his life, Paul struggled with poor eyesight. We know it because he mentions it. In fact, in his letters, 
he usually has someone else write the letter for him because it's difficult for him to be able to read unless the letters are very large. He sometimes signs his name and says, look how big my letters are because my eyes aren't good. In fact, even this letter to the Romans, we will see in chapter 16, he has a secretary writing it for him who names himself. The rest of his life, Paul had a struggle with limitations on his eyesight, but he said, we don't live by sight. We live by faith. In other words, Paul was grateful for the weakness because it revealed his need and also it called him to trust in the grace of God. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign with life. Friend, my heart is filled with compassion for you and for me. It's the compassion of the Lord. Here is his body. I know it's a piece of bread, but this bread is a symbol and this bread is a sacrament. That means not only is it a sign for us, it is also a means of grace. God wants you and I to experience a taste of grace today. The reality is that his body was broken for you so that you could come into his body as his life comes into you. Now your body is broken in various ways, just like mine is. Maybe you have a broken kind of back like I seem to have this week. Maybe you have a broken heart. Maybe you have a broken will. Maybe you're struggling with things that you can't seem to get out of habits, attitudes. Maybe you have a broken relationship, a broken marriage. Maybe your son or daughter is broken or your mother or father. Maybe life is broken. Maybe you're just flat broke and you've got bills to be paid. I don't know what your particular situation is. It could even just be the ennui of the angst of knowing that there's no peace inside and you don't know where to find it. Inside this piece of bread is the peace of life and it comes from Christ. How about you hand over everything of your brokenness to him right now as he gives his broken body to you. Lord Jesus, we receive your body and as your body, we believe that you unite us in this communion. And we ask Lord God that you would make us one in you and one with you and that that wholeness within us from you would bring holiness in us and through us from you by your grace, in Jesus' name. I have a friend who was saying to me recently, you know, I believe in God. I'm not sure about Jesus. And I don't like this. I don't like the idea of sin. I don't believe in sin and damnation. I just, I don't believe in that. The problem is God does. And God won't stop believing in that because God isn't a liar. Sin exists. I know it's unpleasant. I know it runs counterintuitive to our modern sensibilities. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter so much whether you believe in it or not because it doesn't need for you to believe in it for it to prevail. But in fact, if we're gonna be honest with God, let's be honest with the person in the mirror. We know that sin is real and we know that we have sinned now know that God is real and that God has already forgiven 
Let forgiveness like grace flow like blood, like a stream, like a rain, to cleanse, to redeem, to fill, to restore. Lord, we confess our sins to you right now. They are many. But we thank you, Lord, that in you is forgiveness of all sin. As we drink this cup of your covenant, Lord, we know that you remain faithful. We ask that you would keep us faithful to you. Help us, Lord, to repent quickly and earnestly of any of our sin. Help us, Lord, to live by faith and to walk in grace. Help us, Lord, to show grace to others. We also extend forgiveness to those that have wronged us and ask, Lord, that those we have wronged would forgive us and that you would give us the strength to seek that forgiveness from them wherever we can, wherever you would have us to. And Lord, most of all, we trust that as we drink of this cup of your blood, we receive the cup of your covenant, grace and everlasting life in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Grace to you. Now walk in that grace. Go in that grace. Live in that grace. It's real. He's real. And he calls you to an everlasting life of hope and an unending expanse of grace. I pray that the grace of the Lord may keep you, watch over you, fill you, encourage you, strengthen you, preserve you, protect you. And in that grace, may you walk, may you speak, may you live as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, your gospel of a good God who brings grace to a world in need. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.